Oh, I should stand up and start thinking of something. Start thinking of something quick. I don't want to go into a whole spiel, but I, I said in my previous class that I was at, I was walking to the bathroom before my class last night, and a bunch of students were sitting on the floor before a class of their own, and one of them said, and I quote, I didn't bring my computer, so I'm going to be so bored in this class. Uh, <laughs> I thought, there you go. And then I looked through lines, I don't know. I was sitting in a circle in the bathroom? Outside the bathroom. Uh, like, <laughs> on the ground in the bathroom. Yeah, well, um, what struck me last night was uh, that when you say that you're bored, you say the class is boring, right? Uh, that a thing can't be boring, right? It's not a quality of a thing to be boring. Uh, just like it's not a quality of a thing to be angry or it's a quality of a thing to be interesting, actually. What you're saying when you're saying a thing is bored, you're saying is I'm bored. That's, that's a very different statement, right? Because that converts it from a fault of the object to a fault of the subject. Like, who are you? How, how ill have you constructed your consciousness such that it is capable of being bored? How empty does your mind have to be so that the absence of a computer makes you bored, right? That's what you're actually confessing when you say something is boring, that you have no inner resources. Because even if you're sitting here not listening, if you have a full mind, you won't be bored, right? Um, and if you, but if you have a computer changing all the time, well, then you don't have a full mind, apparently, right? You need the, you need the computer to fill it. So beware of that, you know. Uh, class is boring or something like that, because you're really making a drastic statement about yourself. Um, I don't know that I've ever been bored. Although I, I do remember years ago, I was on a, I was on a grand jury, um, and every case was a bind bust case, and they read it from a script, right? Did there come a time when you saw the defendant on standing on the street corner? Yes, I did. And did there come a time when the defendant reached into his pocket and pulled out an envelope? Yes, he did. You know, like, like here's a hundred times, I thought, what's this strange feeling overcoming me? This must be boredom. This is what they mean. And then I, I quickly cured myself of it by thinking about uh, the philosopher Plotinus. As a matter of fact, there's much on my mind in those days. Um, so anyway, just something that someone ought to point out to young people at some point, that uh, the boredom is a fault of the person who claims it being bored, not anything else. Um, and again, interesting is not a quality of objects, it's a quality of a person. Um, can you be interested in something? Well, that's saying that's a lot, right? If you can. Some people can't be interested in anything, actually. It's a real problem. Um, I was saying last night that my brother is a shrink. Um, and he, uh, he, as I said last night, he hates his patients. And he specializes in adolescence, right? So he, he, he's not, not a pleasant man, my brother. And um, he had one kid in there. He said, as soon as kid comes in, he says, you know, school's boring. What about home? Home's boring. What about sports? Sports are boring. All right, what isn't boring? Computer games aren't boring. And my brother says, boy, is that kid fucked. <laughs> because nothing is ever going to be interesting in this kid. 
I don't know, 800 BC? In other words, the last 150 years is a very short time in terms of the actual history of the arts, and nobody thought of asking about the artist's intention at any point, right? Nobody said to Van Eck, well, did you intend for that sheep to be in the middle of the, of the Ghent altarpiece? It was sort of taken for granted that, as Hanslick says, that an art is to do, that when it's done, then it's done, right? And intentions no longer make any difference. So, so it's a new question, right? But the other thing about intention is it's also a strange question to ask and to think about it. How do, you, how do we know he intended that? Well, how do you know anybody intended anything? How do you know that anybody, how do you know the mind of another person? How do you know what's actually in the mind of another person, right? You don't know what's in the mind of the person sitting next to you, right? Uh, no less the pe than the people you're closest to. You don't know what's going on in their minds, right? Often the case. I remember a fellow teacher of mine saying, the person to whom I am closest is the person who understands me least. <laughs> and I think that's a common experience in, uh, in uh, relationships. <laughs> um, what would satisfy you for an answer to that question? How do we know he intended it? What form would the answer to that question take? Well, he said he intended it. Well, but he could be lying. He left documents signed before a notary saying that he intended it, but he could be lying there too, right? And then, of course, you're dealing with people who are not only, uh, not only are they not present to you, the artists in any case, so that you can't actually have access to their mind even if they're sitting next to you, but some of them have been dead for hundreds of years. So how are you going to settle that question, right? In other words, it's a question that can't be answered if what you ask is a statement about, about the mind of another person. Uh, and people being able to lie makes it hard to discover anybody's intentions. Um, the other thing that makes it a strange question is, would knowing the intention change the work in any way? Would it suddenly rearrange the words of the poem? Would the painting suddenly take on a bloom, right? The thing won't change even if you know the intention, right? So why, do you, why are you interested in it? If you, even if you know the intention, does it add anything to the formal unity of the work? It can't, right? It can't. Um, does it add anything to the beauty of the work? No, right? The work is either beautiful or not, depending on its formal arrangement. It has nothing to do with whether you intend it or not. Um, to use Cabell's example, um, if you knew that the boxer intended to duck, does that mean that he hasn't been knocked out, right? I mean, the blow connected. He was knocked out. But who cares what he was intending? All right, nobody intends to lose. No batter intends to strike out, right? So would it make any difference if he knew that he was trying to hit the ball and he didn't? No, there would still be an out. So intention is a strange thing to ask for anyway, even if it was a, a, a discoverable thing. Um, and the, the, the question, the counter question to a question like that is what would satisfy you for an answer? It's, it's a very interesting way to formulate it, because it shows that the person who asked the question hasn't really thought of the question. Um, how would, what would be an answer to a question, how do we know he intended that? Right? And if, if, it's an, if, if you can't answer it, then you haven't really asked the question, if you know what I mean. That, by the way, is a good tip. If someone asks you to define something that you're talking about, that your counter is to say, what would satisfy you for a definition? If that person hasn't thought about what a definition is, then they probably go at them seriously. You shouldn't take their question seriously because uh, there are many different possibilities of definition. So anyway, so it's a new question. It's a strange question. Um, 
and but it comes up all the time. Everyone's always asking about intentions now. But again, to point out another way in which it's a strange question, when you're asked what were you trying to do, the assumption is that what you are trying to do, whatever that is, is formulable in words, right? Because otherwise they wouldn't be asking for a formulation in words, right? So if your intention of your artwork is formulable in words, <laughs> say it in words and get over the problem, right? In other words, it assumes that any visual representation, whether it's a painting or a photograph or a poem for that matter, words are used differently in poetry, can be reduced to a statement in, in normal everyday language. And if that's the case, then that makes the visual representation, the visual form of the thing, irrelevant to the, to the content of it. So it's a crazy question anyway. Um, the only answer to it, of course, is to go, and preferably not to say that's what I intended. But that's what you—that's what you ought to say. What did you? What were you trying to do? What I accomplished would be the answer to that question. Um, but people don't tend to give it that way. They tend to come back with a sentence, and that's—and they fall into the trap of being able to make a verbal equivalent to a visual thing, which just can't be done. I know that in school you have to talk because if you didn't talk, they wouldn't be able to justify <laughs> the tuition money. Um, but. The, the motto of the school, which is present, is a fool of his money are soon parted, which actually took the pains to translate into ancient Greek, but they didn't really want it as a motto. Um, the motto of the school ought to be silence. Right? There ought to be no talk at all about it. I know that you have to talk in a way, and, but you have to learn how to talk in a way that doesn't substitute its own linguistic nature for the thing that you want to actually communicate. And that's not an easy thing to do. But even if that were not the case, right, the fact of the matter is that intention, like every other term that we have been dealing with, I'll write it, there we go, meaningless, meaningless writing on the board, um, it's a philosophical term and it has lots of different possible meanings. And the question is, what does it mean in any given philosophical orientation, right? Again, words aren't things that have one meaning that people misuse. Words have as many meanings as they can take on in the course of a discourse, right? Uh, so every philosopher who uses that term will be meaning something different, and the term will have a different bearing according to the philosophical structure that it occurs in. Um, so if we go back to our idea that, that there are philosophers who posit the existence of a supersensible, ooh, I'll call it a realm, a supersensible realm, an essential or sensible phenomenal realm, right? The supersensible realm is the true one and the real one, and the other is either a less real one or a derivative one or an uh, imitation of one, depending on the philosophical system. Uh, there would be, a, and we saw in this already, there would be two kinds of art, art that rendered the supersensible, art that rendered the sensible. There'd be two kinds of beauty, there'd be the ideal beauty, and there would be simply merely sensible beauty. Uh, there'd be two kinds of nature, the general nature and then the uh, everybody common visible nature. So everything would come in twos, right? And one would be superior to the other. Well, in a philosophy like this, there'd be two kinds of intention, too, right? There'd be, there'd be the right intention, <laughs> right? I'll use Plato here. And that would mean that you willed the rational end, 
Right. In other words, your intention was to will the rational uh, good. Right. The other kind of intention would be to will something other than that. But that wouldn't quite be intention. That would be, in Plato's terms, it would be ignorance. If you knew what you were willing was the good, you would have knowledge. If you, if you thought you were willing something that was good to you but was really bad to you, it must be because you're ignorant of what's really good and the fact that what you're doing is really bad to you. Plato would say nobody willingly does evil. It must be that they don't know what the good is or they don't know what they're doing is evil. That doesn't mean that they don't have a, something in their mind, right, in the sense that they're willing something. But because they're not willing a good or the good for themselves, they must be ignorant. So they're willing, they're willing it must be a kind of ignorance. And that would be a different kind of intention. It'd be a mental event, but it wouldn't be a true or real, uh, a real will. Uh, in the other one, the cause and effect philosophy, in which arts are causes of effects or effects of causes and blah, blah, blah. We've yeah, been through that. Um, this, is the, this is the common everyday idea of intention. Namely, that intention is, a, is an antecedent mental event that is the cause of an external action. Right. Um, so I decided to go to the Met the other day. So I went to the Met. Right. I formulate the plan to myself before I execute it. Right. A plan propositum sibi, as Collingwood says. <coughs> Um, the plan is formulable, it, has to see, it comes before the action that, that it leads to, and you know your own intention. Right? And this is what most people actually are thinking of when they're thinking of what, what did you intend to do. Right? And, and that's, philosophically, I'm not going to dispute it, but there's a few problems with it, just to point them out. One is, you can have more than one intention. <laughs> so you can be operating from a, a number of intentions. In the arts, you can have multiple intentions in any given work. And what's often omitted, one of those intentions may actually be a formal intention. In other words, to solve a formal problem. It doesn't have to be anything other than that, right? That can be a sufficient cause for work of art. Um, the other thing is that even if you have, even if you acknowledge that there are intentions in the primary sense of being able to formulate them to yourself, it's also plausible within these systems to posit the existence of unconscious intentions. Right now. You notice that Freud is a thinker of this kind, right? and Freud is positing unconscious intentions all the time. Right? So an intention may not be fully conscious. So if you're asking, what, what, what did you intend, the person may not know it himself. Right? So there might be no answer to that question. The other thing is, and this is often overlooked, is that the intention is not identical to the form of its satisfaction. What does that mean? Let's say you're, you're, you say, I'm going to, I think I'll eat out tonight. I'll go to that Thai restaurant on the corner. But on the way to the Thai restaurant, you pass a Greek restaurant. You say, I think I'll go to Greek tonight. And then you go into the Greek restaurant. And someone might say, well, you must have intended to go to the Greek restaurant. Right? And at some point, you might have, right? But the, but the actual intention is to eat something. But it could be satisfied in a number of different ways, right? So a statement of the intention doesn't necessarily nail the, uh, nail the action down. Right? 
right, that the action could take different forms along the way. Not to mention that between the, the formation of a plan and its execution, all sorts of stuff can happen that will change the nature of the execution. Um, and that's a common experience in the arts. Uh, down here, I don't want to derive it all, but what intention is in this system would be attributing a motive <laughs> to someone else. Uh, in these systems, knowledge is produced by an act of the maker. So if you ask me what, what someone's intention is, it's whatever I say it is, right, on attributing motives. So who could possibly do that? We do it all the time. I think we almost had evidence of it in our previous discussion. If I say to you, as a student once said to me, Shakespeare discriminates against his female characters, I'm attributing a motive, right? Uh, I'm saying that Shakespeare intended, that's what, and that's what he wanted to do, was to discriminate them. Uh, the, the woman is submissive to the machine that was offered in the last class. It's also a way of attributing a motive to Man Ray, right? Because he's the guy who did it, so he must have had this motive to do it. Um, we do this, common, it's commonly done, right? Whenever you start uh, talking about the arts, you're giving a political or an agenda of some kind. You have no basis other than your own attribution, right? to base that on, right? Um, and it turned out not to always be the case. Uh, so this does go on in criticism more than anything. But in this system, in a system we've been using, uh, which basically has been summed up as art is art, and not ethics, and not psychology, and not convention, let's put it that way, uh, like other things are conventional. Uh, art is art, and the work is the work, right? That's basically all we're saying in this class, by the way. That the, the realm of the aesthetic is different from the moral, the political, and all the rest of it. And that this individual work has its own intelligibility. Um, the intention has to be an aesthetic intention, right? It can't be just any, it can't be like any other kind of intention. It's not that there, there's no such thing um, as, as psychology and that there's no such thing as ethics. It's just that the question is different and we're not, we're not doing psychology, ethics, or history, or anything like that. So the question, in a sense, has to be reformulated in an aesthetic way or it has to be dropped completely. Right? And the way that to, to reformulate it in the aesthetic way is, again, from Travell, brilliant on this subject, says, yeah, intention works in the arts, right? But it doesn't work the same way it does in ethics. In ethics, you ask somebody's intention because you want to understand the motive of what they were doing. And the person will offer you an account of their intention as an excuse or a justification of what they did, right? Uh, you killed them. Well, the gun just went off, right? I didn't intend to do it. I didn't intend to do it. Or I did intend to do it, but because he was threatening me, I had to stand my ground, right? Then you, then you know that intention is functioning as an excuse or as a justification. That's typically how it works. And because in the world, we recognize that things are complicated, we allow excuses and justifications, right? Um, you hurt my feelings. Well, I didn't mean to. That's an, I don't know what that is. <laughs> I, guess that, I didn't mean to, but you, someone had to tell you the truth, right? 
that would be an excuse, would be an excuse and a justification at the same time, right? Um, and we might say, okay, right, because motives are mixed, situations are complicated, you know, lots of things go wrong between the intention and the execution. Um, you know, you didn't, you, you might have hurt my feelings, but in the course of formulating the way you said it, you said it in a particularly hurtful way, you didn't intend to do it. You, you know all this stuff, you're familiar with them, right? And we say, okay, okay, all right, you know, we're just human, all the rest of it. And the world is complicated. But in, in the arts, intention doesn't function as an as a excuse or a justification. And if you take out the idea of excuse and justification from the idea of intention, you're left with one thing only. Responsibility. If you really analyze the idea of intention and leave out excuse and justification, all it could mean was you're responsible for it. Right? Uh, you hurt my feelings. Yes. I intended to, right? I did what I wanted to do. I'm taking responsibility for it, right? If I, now, now, now intention is functioning as a taking of responsibility, not as an evasion of responsibility. And in the, the arts aren't the world. The artist is absolutely responsible for everything in his work. That frame is of his creation. He put it there, right? If it's there, it's his responsibility. And that's what makes the arts different from ethics, where, there, where complications do arise and excuses are legitimate. The artist has no excuse if there's something in there that's not intended. And it was nice last week that the, our, our photography contingent said, no, he's responsible for everything in the frame. That's exactly the, the attitude that, that, that is this one, right? How do you know he intended it? Because it's there. That's the answer. Right? And of course that works in all the arts, because it's there. If he didn't intend it, it wouldn't be there. And if, he, if there's something there that he didn't intend, the work loses all coherence immediately. Right? Um, he has to make that thing cohere. And if he can't make it cohere, then, then he doesn't have an excuse. The whole thing loses coherence entirely and falls to pieces. But if it's there, he intended it. Right? Because that's what it means to be responsible for something. It means for something that past history. It would actually be a work of art. So I think that's how intention would function in a system like this. It would, mean it would be identical to the work. And the answer to how do we know he intended it would be because it's in the artwork. How else do you think it got there? And this isn't so alien an idea of intention as you think, because almost everything you see around you is actually intended to be that way. Have you ever looked at a, a schematic of a microchip design? It's unimaginably complicated, right? And if somebody said, well, how do we know we intended it that way? I'd say, of course they intended it that way. How else do you think they microchips work, right? You wouldn't have any problem with that. But somehow in the arts, you think that, well, maybe it didn't quite work that way. But the arts are, are as rigorous as the design of a microchip. And everybody who's involved in making it work is as responsible as everything in it, as, or the teams of designers that go to make a microchip. And not everybody wants that responsibility, right? They want you to tell them what you've done, what they've done. That's more of an art student thing than an artist thing, though, right? The artist isn't waiting for someone to tell them what, what he did. The artist knows what he's done, otherwise it wouldn't be in the work. Um, the student may require that kind of guidance, but the artist is an accomplished artist on the basis of not needing it uh, and not wanting it. So the answer to what are you trying to do ought to be pointing to object. That's what I was trying to do because that's what I did, 
right? Um, and if you have to, if you say, well, if you know that you failed to do it, that's different. But that's not an excuse. <laughs> and it's not, and no justification will work in that case, right? I was trying to make a beautiful painting, but I made this botch. Sorry, it doesn't work, right? What's your excuse? Well, I was tired. Doesn't work, right? Uh, what's your justification? I don't know what a justification would be. Um, well, I didn't want to. I didn't want to excel anybody. I didn't want to shine in front of my fellow classmates. It still sucks. It doesn't change anything, right? And, and whereas in an ethical situation, it might. It doesn't in an aesthetic situation. So that's that's sort of one of the answers, way of answering what an intention is, and it's based on the idea that art is different from what the same as an intention has to function differently. Yes. Why did you name this class of erotic music? So all the works were supposed to be erotic. Photography <laughs> got a little bit out of the way. But not to get on the whole thing, I thought those Yates poems were very erotic. I mean, it depends on what you think is erotic. Oh, there you go. <laughs> There's more than one idea of that concept. There are students who think that unless somebody's blood is being sucked, it isn't erotic. But um, <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not one of those students. Yes, think that. That's Vampires, you know, isn't vampires? No, those students. Yeah, the vampire types. Um, but dreaming of a Lydian body—that might be erotic to some people. And of course, to his coy mistress. I don't, know about, I don't know about this. Do you find that erotic? There you go. Done. Now that you mention it. So that is the answer to that question. We're gonna we are gonna do a movie in this class and I guarantee it's gonna be it's gonna be erotic. It's at least what was erotic in nineteen twenty three. I think, well, we'll see, right? We just want to broaden the idea of what arrows might contain, right? That's all. So should we get started now that I'm done? <laughs>